Hello and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of human ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of Spiderworks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. With me today is Dan Bresnitz, University Professor and Monk Chair of Innovation Studies and worldwide expert on rapid innovation-based industries and their globalization. He's here to talk about global innovation and his book, Innovation in Real Places. Dan, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me in in the future. (laughs) So the future of innovation policy at the um, Monk School of Global Affairs at University of Toronto, can you tell us a little bit about that and and what is the policy of the future? Sure. And me and my co-director, David Wolf, um, established it specifically to create a hub for both, uh, I should say both, it's three pillars, research, education, and action in innovation policy, both in Canada and outside Canada, um, where innovation policy is, we look at at the broad, broadest sense. So uh, from... um, you know, how you can have either as a city, a province, a state, more effective innovation policy in terms of economic growth, creating of new technologies, to the distributional outcomes of innovation, um, to innovation in specific industries, to social innovation. But the main core is indeed on policy. That is the action, the proposal action of individuals or groups in order to change a situation, you know, increase innovation, widen innovation. It's not on, uh, you know, innovation as an abstract thing, whether it's good or not, the policies, the policy, the focus is on innovation policy. So in Canada, I mean, look, I've been an entrepreneur for many years, um, I'm very focused on on innovation within my own companies and others. I, I find that we're quite innovation challenged in this country. You know, people talk about opportunities versus versus problems, but I, I think there is a problematic side to it in the sense that we focus very much, and, and again, this might be a narrow perspective of mine, but we focus very much on producing things versus producing knowledge and providing the ability to think about opportunity or new or different. And I find that very challenging um, to, to push forward, whether it's a country or an individual company, uh, with, with that sort of narrow output-based thinking. So I will say that um, we are challenged in many ways. As, as you probably know, in my uh, book, I call I gave us a wooden spoon in terms of successful innovation policy as a country. <clears throat> but partly it's because we have such great potential. Uh, but I think that the way to, to even understand where we are challenged is that we, like many, almost everyone in the world, have conflated and confused invention with innovation. Right. Where invention is, you and I will go back to your, or we'll start a new startups based mm-hmm. on some ideas we have. We will even create a prototype and write two paths. That is still an invention. Innovations start to happen when those ideas, so that's the invention is that all process of idealization and even showing that it can, you know, proof of concept. Mm -hmm. Innovations start to happen when, you know, 
if you want to call it the sheet heat the fan or innovation actually heat reality. And that is when you put, in the case of technological innovation, economic innovation, when you put it into the market. And it can be, as you just said, uh, a new products or services, but it is all the way through uh, the production, what we now call supply chain for whatever reason, right. the production networks of all products and services. So from coming up with the new ideas to improving the new product, to figure out new ways and innovation in the production, recombining it, selling and distributing it um, after sale. And we completely are completely obsessed about invention and the very, very high end, uh, where if you actually look at the history of the world um, and you even look at our current sad state with COVID, it is all about, or, or most of the welfare actually happened not in the first stage, but in all other stages. Uh, you could see that in the vaccines, which is lovely to come up with a new mRNA molecular that actually proved to work, but you have to figure out how to produce it into the billions of units how to produce it in a price that every human can access it, how to distribute it, how to create new glass so you can put it you know, in vials in which it actually can travel, um, and how to actually you now know improve this vaccine every six months or so, so it, it will actually be effective. Until we do that, we will have a COVID problem. And the same way goes to um, semiconductors. I know you have three new racing cars waiting to be delivered and they haven't <laughs> been delivered for over a year now, only because there's only one country in the world that know how to innovate in the production of semiconductors and that's Taiwan. And we can go on and on, but I just want to make sure that people understand that the main problem that we now have is that we conflate innovation with invention and only with new ideas and that's just putting me wrong. No, I, I absolutely. And uh, <laughs> thanks also for clearing up where those cars are. I, I've been looking out the window for my sports cars every day, and <laughs> it's a challenge. Yes. So, <laughs> is that so? You talk about um, in, in one of the interviews or blogs that you've got about COVID 19 exposing Canada's innovation weak spot. Is that a little bit going to supply chain? Is that a little bit going to um, global sourcing versus some of the reshoring that might be happening now? What, what, what did we expose in, in Canada? So what we exposed in Canada, and all, by the way, all in North America, also the U.S., is that the one thing, if, if we want to first to understand how innovation translates to economic growth in our current world, we have to understand how the global system works. And what happened in the last 30 years or so, started a little bit earlier, is that we have globalized production, but not in a way that it used to be in the past. You know, Canada, the US will produce cars, Japan will produce cars, Korea will produce cars, Germany will produce cars, France will produce, and they all be produced. But if I buy an American car, it's an American car, if I buy Japanese, and we all trade. No, what we have done is we cut production into specific stages, and then each locale actually innovate and excel in a specific stage. So let me give you examples that might explain to you why you don't have your sport cars. Uh, if you look at semiconductors, you look at places like Tel Aviv, Israel, Silicon Valley, 
Xinjiang, uh, Taiwan, Shenzhen, China, Seoul, Korea, you will see that all of them have extremely successful semiconductors industries. You will even see that most of the same companies work in all those places, the big companies. And yet, once you look at what those companies do in every place, you will see extreme differences. So in Silicon Valley in Tel Aviv, they sort of put ideas of, of a create of new ideas to put on silicon, so to be the novel innovation. In Taiwan, as we now know, it's the only place where they know how to take those ideas and actually make them into silicon. Korea controls specific niches. So you will have no smartphone on earth now without some uh, Korean components. And indeed, even on uh, iPhones, usually Samsung is the second highest in terms of profit from every smartphone sold. And in um, China, especially around Shenzhen, it's the only place now that can innovate and how you take tens of thousands of different subsystems and components with constantly changing materials, with demands that go from make 7 million of them now to 50,000 next week and somehow make it all happen and innovate in that. So what you see is a slicing of a production all around the world into different stages, and you need to have very different innovation capabilities in each. What happened in Canada or to Canada and the US is where we have fought with all those other levels of production, apart from you know, coming up with great ideas, are not innovative and not important and not critical. So we ended up with no masks, no ventilations, no semiconductors, and we can go on and on. I don't know if you try to buy wood to, uh, I know you're renovating your house now, and uh, try to buy wood. I don't know if you checked also, Canada supposedly is a big exporter of wood, but we no longer know what to do with the woods we just cut. <laughs> Dan, do you, do you see this continuing in the future? And, and what I'm saying is, and I, I know it, it speaks to a lot, uh, you speak to a lot of it in your book, but when I look at real places, and as you're talking about Taiwan and Israel and, and China and Korea, um, what their specializations are or specialties are, you know, I, we run a number of conferences on human ingenuity. One is in Columbus, Ohio. Um, Intel just announced the two $10 billion, you know, plants going in New, Al New Albany, just outside of Columbus. Are we going to see a continued reshoring? I mean, have we seen because of COVID that our global supply chain isn't what we thought it would be that, and for, for, for listeners that uh, this morning, <laughs> we're seeing a continued shift, if, if you will, or for people my age, maybe a little bit of a return to a Cold War action. Reshoring, is, is, is that the future? I mean, what are we looking at? So let's be very frank, right? We talked about globalization as if it was really globalized. It wasn't. What started to happen is specific concentration of very specific stages in extremely specific, sometimes sole, area of the world. And in a lot of what we will call production and assembly innovation, and it happens in the China region. And we completely denied the risk. So I know that you have a lot of conferences and a lot of CEOs 
will always tell you about hedging and redundancies. <laughs> we had no hedging and zero redundancies, right. which means whether it was COVID, whether it was a little sheep that blocked the Suez Canal, whether it was a tsunami, we're going to have massive problems. And it went to the level that when we started to have massive problems, they escalate and escalate and escalate. So by the, we never had a global supply chain. And only now, after getting hit and you know, putting a mirror into our face, we realized that. So even without the, geopolit the geopolitics, which we'll talk about in a minute, there was probably going to be, if enough politicians, smart political leader and smart CEOs understood that this is just too vulnerable. So what you would do, you create a redundancy. You're not completely destroying the global world, mm -hmm. but you create, and that's probably the future. Again, even without geopolitics, you create redundancies by creating regional supply chain. Okay. So you have a big one, let's say 70% like the old ways, but you also have a North America production uh, chain, value, supply, whatever lovely things you want to call it. So when things happen, you can move around. And the EU and you know the Pacific. Now at geopolitics. Um, yes, Russia is a call of the past. It is controlled by a person that have repeatedly said that the breakup of the USSR was the biggest mistake of the 20th century, but that's not the future. The real future is the rise of China. Mm -hmm. And the fact that China and people call it the US, but we are Canadian, we, you might have heard about two Michaels, the EU also heard, it's not just the US. Right. Um, we have changing geopolitics and we have found out that there, we are, have a complete critical reliance on China. And now there is a concentrated effort to change it. So you add, you have a hit of COVID that really exposed those two vulnerabilities. One, just because we never had globalization. We had just, let's call it one sourcing, uh, which is not in North America, uh, globalization, which you needed to deal with. And now you also have a geopolitics. So I don't know if we'll expect massive reshoring, as you call it, but I would expect the creation of multiple regional supply networks um, that would lead or complement the current global system with the hope that the current global system will not crash down because the last thing I personally want to see is a new, either real or cold global war in my lifetime. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, I'm certainly of the age where I remember enough. Your book, Innovation in Real Places, um, I've got a lot of serious questions, if you will, but there's one. What yeah. is the fascination with The Wonderful Wizard of Oz? Sure. First, I think it's a great book. I don't know if you've read it lately. The book, not the movie. <laughs> it's extremely well written, and the way that, you know, sentences I use it, tuck, tuck. Tuck, tuck. It's before books became 600 pages just to describe the mood of somebody having a coffee. But more importantly, and I think most people forgotten that, it's a political book. It was written in a certain moment in the US, very similar, by the way, in, in, in some areas, uh, some ways to what we see now. 
uh, we are talking about the first globalization and the first massive financialization. And if you look carefully, you would see, again, in the book, that the book really talks about the gold standard, even expose or expose a way to deal with it, and that is by adding silver, right, mm-hmm. to the way you did money. It's not just by a mistake that the Wizard of Oz lives in a green city where everything is so (laughs) green and he has zero control over the country, just illusions. The evil witches are surprise, surprise in the East and the West. And the good witches are surprise, surprise in the Midwest from the South. The good people are either working agriculture or our factory workers, and the evil people always deal with finance, and we can go on and on and on. So I thought that it's very fitting that a political, I don't know if to call it a satire or allergy of the first globalization should be, you know, the following of a book that tried to explain the second globalization and how you can, uh, how places, real communities can actually reach prosperity within this globalization, the current one based on innovation and not go to uh, certain kind of leaders, let's call them. Understood. So real places, and, and you've, you've alluded to it in, in the last 15, 20 minutes, you know, sitting here in Canada, can we, can a community, can a city, can a secondary city um, become a real place for innovation if the holistic infrastructure of the country maybe doesn't support it? Or does it have to be a, a trickle-down type of effect? So I would argue yes. And the reason I'll actually argue yes is that globalization, that fragmentation, actually give you a lot more options to work with. You do not have... You can be a real place instead of wanting to be a mythical Silicon Valley that probably never existed, never will exist. And even if it will exist, it will be a disaster for your community. By focusing on on different stages of a production in different industries and locking yourself into that global system in different ways. Indeed, the fact that we see now a reconfiguration of those global supply chain and that more and more of those activities actually are, if you want to be called reshore, I actually thought that in many industries, they never existed here. We, we, off, they, we were created offshore, mm-hmm. create even more opportunity for places, at least in the next five years, for places that, that, that understand that this is a new game in town and have and what I think what, and what I call in the book, a real vision. And the real vision is, okay, how do I want my community, my city, Hamilton, for example, mm-hmm. Sudbury, right? We're in Ontario, so let's call, talk right. about our own cities. How do I want Sudbury to look in 15 years? What kind of companies we're going to have in Sudbury? What they supply, which is critically important to the global networks? What knowledge and other things they need to get from the global economy? What kind of people, therefore, they need to be employed? How do they compensate them? And then when we have this vision, we know where we want to 
bridge, right? We, we have a map to navigate instead of a mythical map that claims that innovation will come like mana from the sky and we should count patents or VC without understanding how that lead to actual jobs. We can do reverse engineering and think about innovation policy as one of the tools you use to reach that. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to do in the book, right? There's no magical formula, five stages and you'll be reached. That's, that just doesn't exist. What the book tried to show is what is invention, what is innovation, right. how innovation translates to different kinds, if you're successful, different kinds of growth, more or less prosperity by way, depending on your model of success and how you should think about it. And what are the basic building blocks you need to have? And by the way, it looks from the point of view of the community. So none of those suggestions are suggestions that you might find, you know, in if I would write for the academy and offer an ideal solution. I do not think that anyone, definitely not the mayor of Sudbury, will fix, for example, an intellectual property right or a financial system. So the, the book deals with how this is given. What can you do? So, so you mentioned that. I think that's an interesting point about the mayor of Sudbury, for example. What are the driving forces in, in making a real place innovative? And, and I, you know, there's obviously a, a pretty challenging political dynamic, and it's not Canadian, it's not American, it's internationally. And, and, and our life cycle, the life cycle of our politicians, their ability to make a decision and actually gain consensus, it just seems like they're behind the eight ball right now. So what will the driving force be for, for Sudbury or for Hamilton or whatever town it is in the world? So there's just two, I think you're, you're actually exposed to two problems. One is that dealing, especially with innovation, is something that is uh, long-term and by definition, because you're dealing with innovation, there'll be a lot of failures failures of companies and failures of policies and that you need to experiment to figure out what works what doesn't mm -hmm. which by definition means that it's almost impossible for a politician to do that and get re-elected so places that has succeeded in doing that created an organization institution foundation that actually deals with you know the strategic running and by way operational efficiency unlike some canadian programs the most successful ones are unbelievably good in operation not just in great ideas that run this process for multiple years so what the politicians can do and should do or local leaders is reach an agreement that this is important and then you institutionalize it and create a quasi-independent organization that run it forward no matter who's in control. Mm -hmm. But let me give you an example. In a very old industry outside Canada, just to show you that this is not just high tech. And I'm talking about the uh, luxury woman shoe industry. And when I talk about luxury, I'm talking about the, the shoes that start at a few hundred euros and move to a few thousand euros. Each and every one of those shoes visited a really small place in Italy, the Riviera del Brenta, which is so just of northwest of Venice for the non-Italian in the Veneto. And what is interesting about this place is that this transformation, and the reason they visit is that that place has become 
וטיוואן for shoemaking, for high-end shoemaking. Mm-hmm. So a designer in New York, in Milano, in Paris, come up with this beautiful design, and then it actually needs to become a shoe that a real human wear, it moves to Brenta. And Brenta makes that magic happen. But that was not what Brenta was 30 or 40 years ago. What really happened then is that Brenta was producing a huge amount of low-quality, nameless shoes. Very much what you expect now from China or Bangladesh or Vietnam or Eastern Europe. But the leaders of our community realize that this is the future, speaking about this, and that they need to do something about it. And started to create relationship with the big fashion houses in Milano, but especially in Paris. Devise a program of how they move to become their highest end suppliers the TSMCs of the shoe industry, and then convince the local public servant, the local leaders, to go with this and create a set of institutions that help that, including changing the education system, a little bit in the financial system, uh, expose or a, a kind of uh, institution that actually relates all of our suppliers from the fashion industry to the wood, you know, the pieces of wood that you get and they meet once a year. So all those flows of knowledge now comes to Brenta and all those shoes goes out. So, well, thank you for that. And I'm just thinking about Canada and I'm thinking about our future. Do do we, not do we, but how do we put ourselves on a path to, becoming experts or, or, or knowledge experts in certain areas and, you know, to move away from the wooden spoon, as you describe, what, what, what is our path forward? So I can tell you, let, so first of all, let's remember that Canada is a huge place. Yes. Very diverse. And what will work in Toronto definitely will not work in Sudbury. And we haven't even talked about any of our provinces. Right. Okay. With that in mind, um, let's also talk about what, where our real innovation failure is. We have some of the world's best research infrastructure and research institutions that constantly come up with great invention, but then somebody else's use. And right. the reason somebody else's use it is for over 20 years, our private business sector have been engaging less and less in innovation and forget R&D. It has been engage less and less with new technologies. Mm-hmm. At the same time that our human capital, so Canadian have become the most educated workforce in the world. So the failure is the private business sector. And for the last 20 something years, we have been in a complete denial about that. Constantly trying to fix what actually work and make it even better without saying, okay, we have this, we have, the basically the engine of a new Rolls Royce, but it is tied to a wagon that should be moved by horses. And that's really what happened. We have an engine of of invention and innovation, which is a Rolls Royce tied to a business sector, which is 19th century in its behavior through innovation and technology. And we have never 
focused our attention on fixing that market failure, which by the way, if I'll put now my economic hat on, I'll tell you that's what you would expect. Under free market condition, you would expect businesses to invest less in innovation than the social optimum. That's why we have innovation policy in the world. And we have failed in that very basic understanding. And every year our business sector becomes worse with innovation and engagement with new technologies. And every year, instead of fixing that market failure, we talk about how let's do more radical innovation. Let's have a Canadian DARPA because it will be so successful here, but our business sector will have no clue how to use it. But we don't deal with business sector. I don't know, maybe because they have a lot of money, maybe because we just don't like to embarrass people and tell them that while their profits are unbelievably high, they have failed Canadian for the last 30 years. I, I don't know why. Yeah. You know, it's, it's what you're saying. That was music to my ears. Uh, a few years ago now, I wrote a, a Globe article called uh, Americans Want to Be Bill Gates, Canadians Want to Be Careful. And the reality is, is that as an entrepreneur, and, and I've, I've grown my businesses in, across multiple continents, it's very easy to go to the U.S., and and unfor and it's not something that I want to do. It's not something I think we want to do. And we, being many of the entrepreneurs or inventors that, that I've worked with or spoken to, but until we change the Canadian psyche, until we open ourselves up a little bit to risk and and reward, being okay with shedding some humility, maybe, um, boy, it's going to be very challenging. Very challenging. I agree, but, but I have to say it's also a failure of policy. If your only aim is to maximize profit and you look at how the world has changed in the last 30 years and how Canada is behaving, it's much easier and a lot less risky to do the most simple things in Canada, basically take them out of the ground or fell the tree and ship them as stabilizing and ship them as fast as possible to somewhere else without having to deal with that risky, horrible things called creativity, human thought, talents, um, or innovation, or, or even buying new technologies. Well, I'm staring at a stack of books on reasoning and abductive reasoning because just for fun in my mid-50s, I've decided to do my doctorate, and that is what my research is on. <laughs> so, Dan, I, I really want to thank you for your time. And, and as, as we come to a close, a lighter, a lighter question. It's funny. Um, and again, just as a Wizard of Oz, I, I picked up on, you talked about finally finishing the book by venturing away from home to clear your mind. I've, I have written my books in different places because I just cannot find time in front of a computer. So not just for writing books, I think for innovation and thinking in general, I think that what you did is um, it's, it's something that more of us have to do, get away from our, our everyday environment and discover. Absolutely. And I highly recommend traveling around and meeting other people and see how they actually live and work and buy if you ever want to be successful in life. Dan uh, Resonance, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome and uh, hope to see you soon. Take care. <laughs>